Well, we've been asked this morning to do one, well, a number of things, but one of the things we've been asked to do by Ian and Rachel is to pray for wisdom. Have you stopped to think, what is wisdom? What are we praying for? If we pray for wisdom, how do we know that God is answering that prayer? What is this quality called wisdom? In the Bible, whenever I see the word wise or wisdom, I think of two words. I think of the word reality and I think of the word harmony. Biblical wisdom is to live in harmony with reality. That is why in wisdom literature we always hear this, fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Reality, the Lord. Harmonise with reality, affectionate reverence or fear for him. Fear the Lord. Harmonise with reality. I remember one time we had our five children. We were at an Anglican conference centre in a place called Bathurst in New South Wales on the slopes of the Mount Panorama Racing Circuit. Now, if you watch the Bathurst 500 or whatever it is, or 1000, you'll know that this is a rather famous racing circuit. And all weekend, the kids were saying to me, let's get the Tarago out, Dad, and let's put it through the S's on the top of Mount Panorama. And uh, on the Sunday afternoon when the conference was over... Well, I drove up with the children through the S's at Mount Panorama and I noticed that the S's are very sharp and if you miss them, it's a long way down. I turned the Tarago around and I started to rev the engine and the kids said, come on, Dad, let's put it through the S's. And I thought, well, I've seen uh, Dick Johnson do this, I've seen Alan Moffat do this, I've seen Peter Brock do this many occasions and I thought to myself, now, wait on, I've never seen them do it in their Toyota Tarago. And I've never seen them do it with their five children in the back. And I've never seen them do it with their wife sitting next to them saying, don't you dare, David. And so I took the S's at 20 kilometres an hour. And the kids all said in harmony, you're a wimp, Dad. Yes, I'm a wise wimp. I recognised the reality of the situation and I drove in harmony with the reality. Wisdom, reality, harmony. Wisdom, live in harmony with reality. Now, I've asked that the words of Ephesians 5 be up there because I think it's essential that you have these words in front of you, either there on your device or, if you like me, in a real Bible. Look, the real thing. So open it up, please, to, and look at the way Paul says three don'ts and three do's. And remember that he's in the second half of his letter to the Ephesians. And the first don't comes in verse 15. He says, don't be unwise, but do be wise. And this is how we are to live as Christians. What does he mean by that? Verse 16, by making the most of the opportunity because the days we are living in are evil and they are not never ending. The days will end. And so don't live as though these days are everlasting. That's unwise. That's not living in harmony with reality. Live in harmony with reality because the days are evil and they are running out. Now, I don't know if you read The Age in Sydney. I don't read the Sydney Morning Herald, but I have a look at it, especially on a Saturday. I go down to the coffee shop and I have a look at it because in the Sydney Morning Herald, which is the sister newspaper of The Age... That's where the death notices are. And at my age, you want to check to make sure, see if your friend, how many of your friends are there. Do you know that I count every Saturday the number of people who are listed in the Sydney Morning Herald? And there are usually an average of 75 people every week in Sydney. 
in the death columns of the Sydney Morning Herald, and I'm sure there's an equivalence in the age. You see, time's running out. You might think, oh, well, I'm young, I've got all of life. Let me tell you, I'm 70. Life goes very quickly. So the Apostle Paul, what he's saying here is, make the most of the opportunity you have now to live and speak for Christ because the time is running out. Now look at the second don't, verse 17. Therefore, don't be foolish, but do understand what the Lord's will is. See, this is wisdom. Don't be unwise, do be wise. Don't be foolish, but do be understanding. In these limited days, don't just rush out and do anything. Go and do what you believe that God has equipped you to do. Don't just do whatever it is at hand but act in a productive way and an efficient way, understand what the will of the Lord is for you, and do that. Now look at the third don't and do. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. But do be filled with the Spirit. You see the don't do, don't do, don't do. There's a relationship there's, a, li- there's a, a, a likeness between what you don't do and what you do do. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying in verse 18, being filled with the Spirit is like being drunk with wine. There is a distinctive difference, but there is a likeness. Now, recently I was on a bus in Sydney. It was late at night. <clears throat> a man got on the bus and he was drunk. When he got on, he staggered onto the bus. He then looked in his pocket for his change to pay the fare. As he looked around, he gazed at the other passengers and it was clear that he was drunk. In the old days, you'd say, oh, he's full. That's what you'd say when you see someone drunk. He's full. That means that he's not spatially full from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head, but alcohol has taken possession. Now, Paul says, don't let alcohol take possession. Why? Because it leads to what he calls debauchery, uncontrolled living, living in which you have no control, out of bounds. But there is a likeness between being drunk and being filled with the Spirit. Just as alcohol has taken control, so the Apostle Paul says, let the Spirit take control. And he will not lead to debauched living. Of course, a primary fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control, isn't he? But do be filled with the Spirit. Now look at that, because we're talking about the Spirit this weekend, and it seems to me that this is a vital verse for us. Let me give you uh, some insight into English grammar at this point. Look at what he says. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. It's plural. In other words, you all be filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is something that we all enjoy together. Now, dear friends, what I want to encourage you this weekend is to come to the Scriptures and let the Bible speak and let the Bible confront perhaps our Pentecostal convictions about the Holy Spirit. And my background is as a Pentecostal. Uh, If you'd have seen me in the 1970s, I was right in the middle of the Pentecostal charismatic movement. And then I started to read the Bible. And I started to interpret my experience through the Bible, not the other way around. I want you to notice what the Apostle Paul says here. You be filled with the Spirit... Being spirit-filled is not something which I enjoy alone. 
it is plural. You all be filled with the Spirit. Secondly, it's a present tense. In other words, you be filled with the Spirit and you go on being filled with the Spirit. You see, in the Greek language, there are two tenses. There's a tense that is called an, uh, a linear tense and there is a punctilia tense. Let me just describe it like this. There's a tense that says... And there's a tense that says... Now, that's a very technical way of describing the Greek. In other words, there's a tense that says, be filled once and for all, and you're never filled again. That's not the tense here. This is the tense that says... Sorry about the microphone there. But in other words, you be filled, and you go on being filled. In other words, it's a present tense. It's a linear tense. So in other words, here he's saying... You all be filled, and you all go on being filled. But, of course, the frustrating part about this is that, notice, it does not say, you fill yourselves. That's active. You're actually passive. Now, if you said to me, go and walk around the campsite, I could go and walk around the campsite. But if you said to me, go and be walked around the campsite, well... What do I do? I've got to wait for someone to do it to me. You see, here you are passive. You are not told to go and you fill yourself with the Spirit. I'm simply taking you back to what the Bible says. And here the Apostle Paul says, you make sure that you are being filled with the Spirit. Ongoingly, and you are passive, and it is something we all share in, and it is something in which we must do. It's a command. Now, am I doing something wrong, Robert? That's not me. Good. Okay. Good. Well, let's keep going. Let's concentrate here because this is vital for us. So here is the classic New Testament encouragement for us who are Christians to go on being filled with the Spirit. We all go on being filled with the Spirit. We all go on, go on being filled with the Spirit. It is something that God does to us. It is not something we do to ourselves and you must be. It is a command that you be filled with the Spirit. Well, you say, okay, well, if I'm passive, how can I be filled with the Spirit? Well, look at what the text says. Paul immediately follows this in verse 19 with four ing words. We call them participles. Speaking, singing, giving thanks, verse 20, and verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, we are being told, this is t telling us how we can go on being filled with the Spirit by speaking, by singing, by giving thanks, and by submitting to God. And as you do those things, God will be filling you with his Holy Spirit. I simply want you to see that all the tracts you read about how to be filled with the Spirit, this is what you must do, one, two, three, four. Notice what the Apostle Paul says. He says, get out there and speak to one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Sing joyfully with music. Always give thanks to God the Father and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And as you do that, you will be being filled with the Spirit. And as you are being filled with the Spirit, he will enable you to do that. Now, isn't that incredible? That is simple, that is clear, that is plain teaching of the Bible. Uh, when one of our sons left school, he went straight to a rugby league team in Sydney. He had to try out. 
he was told there were 100 young men trying to get into this team and the coach was going to select 20. The coach said, if you are selected, you will immediately be given a contract and you will be given access to four nights a week of training. If you come to training, it means you have a contract and the first clause of the contract is that you will come to training. So coming to training is both the fruit of having a contract and the condition of keeping the contract. Now notice that these ING words are the fruit of being filled with the Spirit and the ongoing condition of being filled with the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice that these are personal issues. I speak to you. I express joy. I submit to you. I give thanks for everything. They are down to earth and they are practical. Now, dear friends, I know that back in the 1970s when I was in the charismatic movement, the signs of being filled with the Spirit were never seen in these terms. They were always seen in sort of supernatural, more supernatural terms. But the Apostle Paul says that being filled with the Spirit really is very communal. It is very practical. It is down to earth. It's a matter of speaking to one another in spiritual terms. It's a matter of singing joyously in our heart to the Lord. It's a matter of always giving thanks for everything. And it is a matter of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Aren't they practical, down-to-earth ways in which the fullness of the Holy Spirit is seen and in which the fullness of the Holy Spirit is maintained? This is a Christian community. Uh, when I went out to our first parish, our first parish was out at a place called Wee War, which was northwest New South Wales, cotton-growing country. The majority of our congregation were Americans who had come from the United States to grow cotton in Australia. And I can remember before, towards the end of our first year there, I was a city boy through and through, and we went out to a cotton property. And that afternoon, it was late October, and the cotton was about that far above the ground. The wheat was in head, almost ready to be harvested. And that afternoon, uh, we saw a great storm come from the north, a hailstorm. And uh, we all went inside as the hail hit. And we noticed that whereas we were excitedly looking at the giant hailstones, everyone else in the room was silent. Because this was devastation. It would cut the cotton down and you couldn't replant it. It would take the head off the wheat and it couldn't be harvested. When we, the hailstorm passed, we went outside to look at our cars, which had been pelted by the hailstones. And I was with the owner of the property, who was one of our elders. And one of his labourers came up and he said to my friend, well, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And he spat on the ground in front of us out of his anger. This was the man, the elder, my friend, who was going to lose everything. Wheat, cotton, all gone. This was just one of his labourers. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And my friend said, you finish that first. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Dear friends, that is an evidence of spirit-filledness. He gives thanks for always and for everything. Even that which is devastating. Do you see what Paul says there? Verse 20, always giving thanks to God. So here is your command. Here is a command in which you all participate. 
Here is a command in which you are passive. Here is a command which goes on in a linear way. But here is a command, notice, which shows itself in speaking, in singing, in giving thanks, and in submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That word submission, actually I've sat down with many married couples, I remember when I was marrying people. Well, what does that word submission mean? Well, what does the Greek mean? Uh, The Greek means um, submitting. (laughs) (laughs) And if you want to know what a word means, I often think it's, it's really interesting to look at what the opposite of that word is. And in Greek, it's a very easy opposite. The opposite is also found in one verse in James. Submit to God, resist the devil. That's the very opposite. The opposite of submission is resistance. Submit, order yourself under, and don't put yourself over. It is like the curse on Eve in Genesis 3. Don't put, you will be putting yourself over. Don't do that. Submit, order yourself under. But here, verse 21, the fullness of the Holy Spirit is seen in that we submit to one another. I'm preferring you. You go ahead. You have your way. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, keep your finger there. Keep that up there. That's fine. But keep your finger, if you have your Bible on your device, uh, just come over three or four pages to Colossians chapter 3, and I want you to see what the same author, the Apostle Paul, says, because I think this is enlightening. When he is writing the parallel letter to the Colossians, chapter 3, verse 16, see what he says. In Colossians 3.16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God, and whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do you notice that the fruit is almost the same? But here, instead of being filled with the Spirit, we are told to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly richly, as we teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Now, let me ask you, at Surrey Hills Presbyterian, do you let the word of Christ dwell in you richly? Oh, you say, oh, yes, uh, uh, Chris preaches and John preaches. No, that's not what it says here. It's important that the word of Christ be preached from the pulpit, that's for sure. But notice, as you teach and admonish one another, This is something we do together as we teach and admonish one another with the word of Christ when we're sharing with each other. And the same fruit of having the word of Christ dwell in us richly is the same fruit as when we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Of course there's a direct relationship between the Spirit and the word because the Spirit breathed the word out. Now we, I I sometimes hear a wedge being driven between spirit and word. Oh, you're a spirit person, I'm a word person, or I'm a word person, you're a spirit person. No way. If I'm a spirit man, I'm a word man. If I'm a word man, I'm a spirit man. Because the spirit breathes the word out. And therefore the Apostle Paul almost can use it interchangeably. If the word of Christ is dwelling in us richly, this is the fruit. And it's the same fruit as when the spirit is dwelling in us in all his fullness. Be filled with the spirit. All right, how does this work out in practice? I love the reality. I love the practicality of the Christian life. 
Yesterday as I'm driving along with my Turkish cab driver and he's telling me about some of his problems in life, I said to him, I find it wonderful that I can pray to my heavenly father and talk to God not as though he's a threat, but I talk to God as a perfect father. How wonderful that is. And now the Apostle Paul takes us into the homes of the spirit-filled people. And what does he say? Look at verse 22. He starts with wives. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, I I just want to speak up for blokes at this point. (laughs) Because sometimes when I go to church... Whoever's preaching, normally a bloke, skips over that and gets stuck into the husbands because he's a bloke. I noticed just after last Sunday, Father's Day, when we go to church on Mother's Day, we have flowers and some wonderful, oh, mother's wonderful. Yes, they are. Go to church Father's Day. You fathers ought to do better. (laughs) I think, what's going on here? I get a hard time when I go on Father's Day. My wife gets built up. Why don't I get built up sometimes? Because there's a bloke up the front. And he thinks he can have a go at me, but he can't have a go at the women. And we all need encouragement. Fathers and mothers need encouragement. Wives and husbands need encouragement to be godly. I just want to say that I didn't write this. But here there is an order that says that the wife is to submit. Now what I want you to notice here, that in the Greek this is a middle voice. I think it's vitally important, which means that this is something which wives do to themselves. They do not have this imposed on them by anyone else, not by a husband. So Paul is saying here, wives, literally, you bring yourself under and respect your husbands. This is something which the spirit-filled wife will do, and I take it, therefore, that it is not always easy to do. But the spirit-filled wife will enable you to do that. And the reason is that the husband has been given a leadership role in the house, which is similar to what Christ has in the church. Verse 24, now, as the church submits to Christ, wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Respect your husband, bring yourself under his leadership, and try and encourage that leadership in every way. Husbands, you love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And notice, please, that in verse 26 and 27, the object of every verb is the wife. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain, wrinkle, or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. She is precious to me as the church is precious to Christ. And as Christ laid down his life in love for her, then the husband is to lay down his life in love to see his wife presented radiant without blemish and holy on the day. In the same way, the Apostle Paul says, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. If the example of Christ is too elevated, then the way you respond to your own body, protect yourself, feed yourself, 
you are to see your your wife as uh, precious in that way. No one ever hated his own body, verse 29, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Isn't that remarkable? This is a profound mystery. Now, dear friends, let me just say that for four years when I left the college, I joined the staff of the Chinese Presbyterian Church in Sydney, and I got pastoring Chinese people, which was really great fun. Um, these Chinese people are so Chinese, aren't they? Uh, <laughs> and I can remember a, a couple coming and asking me. I, I love Chinese people because they're so respectful. Uh, Pastor Cook. Oh, yes, good. <laughs> Call me David. Oh, uh, Pastor David, uh, Mr. Cook. Uh, uh, yes. Okay, we want you to preach at our wedding. Our wedding, you know, enormous, like the Olympic Games. Yes, a thousand people there. Good, I'd love to preach at your wedding. What would you like me to preach on? We want you to preach on the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon? Yes. Oh, right. Um, uh, do you know what the Song of Solomon's about? Yes. Um, what is the Song of Solomon about? Sex is good. <laughs> yes, I think it is. Yes. Do you want me to preach to a Chinese audience on the fact that the sex is good? Let me tell you, there was an elder, and I, I did a series in this church on sex on one occasion, and I spoke to the senior elder, and he said, oh, Chinese people don't like talking about sex. And I said, no, but there are a lot of Chinese people, aren't there? Um, <laughs> and our Sunday school was bursting at the seams. Uh, and so this is remarkable. I was being asked to preach on the Song of Song by this Chinese couple, lovely young couple. And I can remember the sermon. Um, here is a relationship between a man and a woman, Song of Songs. Uh, here is a relationship which a covenantal relationship, a committed relationship. Here is a relationship which is a passionate relationship. And the fourth quality about this relationship is that it is a holy relationship. The relationship between a man and a woman is equivalent to the relationship of Christ and the church. This is a visual aid. When you see this man, this husband married to this wife, this wife married to this husband, it points away from itself. And you say, this reminds me of something. It reminds me of how Jesus loves and of how the church respects. It's a remarkable thing. And the Apostle Paul is saying here, look again in verse 32. This is a profound mystery. This is a mystery which has been hidden up to now. But I'm telling you that when Moses wrote that a, a man should leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh, Moses is talking about the human husband and wife, but he's also ultimately talking of and foreshadowing Christ. So this relationship is a profound mystery now revealed. When you look at this husband, when you look at this wife, look at the way he loves. Look at the way he lovingly leads. Look at the way she respects. Doesn't that remind you of something? Yes, it's sacramental. It's reminding me of the relationship of Jesus and the church. And dear friends, I want you to notice that all of this is driven... By verse 18, be filled with the Spirit because the Spirit-filled husband is going to live like this. 
And the spirit-filled wife is going to live like this. But Paul doesn't say at this point that this is where it finishes. Belligerence, bossiness, resistance, it's all out because of the spirit's filledness. Now, I think we need to remind ourselves of this again and again. This time when I was in the UK, I've just come back from the UK, I was listening to BBC Radio. And there was a very measured conservative sociologist on there. And he was saying, I believe that we are seeing the breakdown of British society in our day and age. Uh, You know that same-sex marriage has been approved by Parliament in the United Kingdom. Do not think that it's had no effect. This man is saying we are seeing the breakdown of British society in our day and age. He said, I can tell you that the average child who goes to school in Britain aged five, by the time they reach the age of 16, over half of them will no longer be with their both birth parents. We are living in the day of either single parenting or same-sex parenting. That's what this man said. We need to hear this again and again. My children and grandchildren need to see a grandfather and a grandmother who love and respect one another. And I know that the only way that can happen with two sinful people is if the Holy Spirit is filling us. And the fruit of that fullness is that we will love and respect one another. But I love the fact that here is a wonderful word to children. Look at chapter 6. Paul now follows this with a word to children. And I want you to notice that it comes late in the letter. Can you imagine at Ephesus, this is being read out, this letter, in the Christian assembly. Well, if you were going to have a word to children, wouldn't you say it first? Of course you would, while they're still paying attention. But here Paul puts it last. You say, well, he doesn't understand children. Well, whatever. The fact is that he has a word for children and I think he does understand children because he makes it quite succinct. Children, you can know the fullness of the Holy Spirit as well. And how does the fullness of the Holy Spirit show himself in your case? Look at chapter 6, verse 1. You will be obedient to your parents. That's what you... It's very simple. It's very uncluttered. You don't know everything. Therefore, you do as you're told. Now, obedience and submission are very different, aren't they? There is a voluntary nature to submission. There is a rational nature to submission, but when it comes to children, you be obedient, you do exactly as you are told. And Paul goes on and says, Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Paul anticipates the question of the child, why should I? I'll tell you why you should. (laughs) And he says, here's the commandment and this is the reason. So, you see, most children will say, well, don't just tell me what, but tell me why. God never tells us what without telling us why. Have you noticed that? It's very respectful of it, isn't it? God never gives you a command without telling you why you should do it. And so when I give leadership to children, most often I'll be looking for ways of telling them why they should do what I'm telling them to do. This is what. Obey. This is why. Fathers. Now, let me have a special word to you. Don't exasperate your children. That is, don't play favourites or frustrate them or exasperate or tease them to the point of anger. I know how easy that is. (laughs) Don't be inconsistent. Don't play favourites. Don't push them ambitiously to do all the sorts of things you couldn't do. Don't do it, fathers, because fathers are apt to do it. Rather, fathers, 
are to train and instruct them. The idea is of a coach who is running with the team. This is a key role to the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't leave it to the youth worker. Don't leave it to the youth leader. Don't leave it to the Sunday school teacher. Fathers in the home, you make sure that this is a place of loving nurture and instruction. And this is hard, but you'll do it in the power of the Spirit. Now, dear friends, let me just tell you, I'm now 70. I can remember having family devotions five nights a week at our place. And we had one child, our fourth child, who was a son, who never wanted to have family devotions. He always had some other excuse to do something else. And we raised him from when he was very young to when he was about 22. And even when he was 22 and he was off at work and off at studies, he always, when it came to family devotions, oh, he wanted to get out of there. Then he gets married and he stands up as a groom. And the first thing he said as a groom was this, Mum and Dad, I just first of all want to say thank you for family devotions. I could have wrung his neck. (laughs) He fought us all those years. But the first thing he said to us was, thanks for family devotions. Now, isn't that wonderful? Aren't I pleased before God that God the Holy Spirit helped my wife and I to continue to persevere in reading the Bible with our children and praying with them? Because now I see him battling with his own son in family devotions. I love to see it. (laughs) It's just wonderful. So you keep at it. None of these things are easy. It is not easy for me not to exasperate my children. It's not easy for me to look to their training and instruction. It's not easy for me to love my wife. It's not easy for my wife to be respectful towards me. It is not easy. It's not natural. But the Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to do it. And then the Apostle Paul talks uh, talks about an area, verse 5, which is very common. In the early church, the majority of people were slaves. Paul doesn't confront slavery at this point. Rather, he talks about people who are slaves and people who are masters. I guess we could relate this to employer Employee, though it is not an exact equivalence. But Paul says to those who are slaves, there are certain principles here for you to keep in mind, and masters, I want you to know that there are also certain principles to keep in mind. How wonderful this would be. We wouldn't need a Fair Work Commission if these principles were being put consistently into effect. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. It's almost as though Paul's saying, you remember you've got a heavenly one. But those on earth, you obey them with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey sincerely. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eyes on you, but like slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. You be a good employee. And don't you be muttering about the boss behind his back. And don't you pilfer and thieve. You be good, because your accountability is toward Almighty God. And you masters, you treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, 
And he's not going to play favourites. You respect your slave. You treat your slave with fairness. You treat your slave as though you're going to answer to God for your stewardship over him or her. The blessing of God will be upon you. You see, very practical, isn't it? And yet in all my charismatic days, we always looked for the supernatural. The slave, the master, the employer, the employee, the father, the child, the child, the parent, the husband, the wife, the wife, the husband, the people at church, be filled with the Holy Spirit and see that his fullness shows itself in practice. Uh, in the midst of all the talk from the doctors today let me just talk about David Gordon David Gordon was a lecturer in a theological college in the United States he was in his early 60s he goes to his GP and the GP says I think you've got a problem I'll refer you to a specialist a bowel surgeon he goes to the bowel man and the bowel man tells him that he has a grade 4 tumour and that he should go home and get his affairs in order. They'll operate, but they're not convinced that they'll be able to solve the problem. David Gordon goes home to get his affairs in order. He thinks, I think I'm an angry man. I'm going to write a book about what really makes me angry in the American church. And like an angry man in his early 60s, he writes a book about the poor state of preaching in the American church, and he calls it Why Johnny Can't Preach. And then he finds that he's still living. And as far as I know, he's still living today. And he's still writing angry books. His second angry book, he thought, right, I'll just keep writing these books about things that make me angry. The second book, I tell you, you ought to get it because it is a blisteringly angry book. It's called Why Johnny Can't Sing, The State of Singing in the American Church. And he blisters about that. He's a man in his early 60s, remember? My kids tell me I'm never so old as when I talk about my musical preferences. And so he writes Why Johnny Can't Sing. But this is what he says in Why Johnny Can't Preach. He says, ethical injunction must never be divorced from its redemptive environment. Ethical injunction must never be divorced from its redemptive environment. And when I read that, I thought, yes, that is precisely the preaching I've been hearing at my Chinese church. The preacher invariably tells us what to do but he never tells us why to do it. Ethical injunction, do this, must never be divorced from its redemptive environment. This is what God has done. And would you notice that in all these injunctions, the Apostle Paul never divorces this from what God has done. You be filled with the Spirit. But how can we have the Holy Spirit? Well, I've told you in the first three chapters. You have the Holy Spirit through having the Lord Jesus. And when you come to the Lord Jesus, your sin is forgiven and he gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now that you are the redeemed people of God, this is the way you'll live. It's not a matter of living this way and you will be the redeemed people of God. You are the redeemed people of God, so live this way. Now let's look at how beautifully that is in a chapter just before this one. Look back to Ephesians chapter 2. And let's look at these very well-known verses, verses 8 and 9. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul is talking about how the Gentiles were dead 
before they came alive in Christ. And then he says in chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 8, It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this faith is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. So contrary to my deserving, God saves me, and he saves me by giving me faith which links me to Jesus. So the very faith I need to link me to Jesus is God's gift to me. So what part of salvation did I contribute? I didn't contribute Christ. I didn't even contribute faith. That is God's gift to me. This, Paul says, verse 9, is not by works, so that I can't work myself into this relationship with God, so that no one can boast. So there is nothing in my salvation of which I can boast. All I can say is, well, it's by grace. It's contrary to my deserving. Now, Paul goes on and says, well, there's nothing that we can do in order to earn our salvation or merit our salvation. So what do the place of good works have? For we, verse 10, are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Good works, therefore, are the fruit of a relationship with God, not the root, if you like. And therefore, we are to be zealous for good deeds. So there is always an outworking of faith. There is always an outworking of spirit-filledness. And the spirit's fulledness shows itself in the way we speak, in the joy in our heart, in our thanksgiving, and in our submission to one another. The spirit's fulledness shows itself at the kitchen table. The spirit's fulledness shows itself in the bedroom. The Spirit's fullness shows itself in the home. The Spirit's fullness shows himself on the factory floor, in the office. The Spirit's fullness is eminently practical. It is plural. It is present tense, ongoing. It is passive. It is something which God does as we speak, as we give thanks, as we sing, and as we submit to one another. So the question is, are we walking in the fullness of the Spirit? Are we speaking, singing, giving thanks, submitting? And in particular, wives, husbands, children, employers, employees. But are we, as a church family, walking in the Spirit's fullness? Well, let's pray for one another to that end. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we thank you for pouring out on your people, on the church, your Holy Spirit. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is present in each of us, in the people of Surrey Hills Presbyterian. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for one another. Thank you that the Spirit is among us. Thank you that the Spirit is urging us on in our thanksgiving urging us on in our speaking, urging us on in our mutual respect. Thank you that the Holy Spirit is present in our homes. Thank you that the Holy Spirit is present in our workplace. We pray that the fruit of the Holy Spirit will be evident more and more, Heavenly Father, in our church and in our homes and in our places of work so that the Lord Jesus, our Redeemer, will be honoured and glorified. 
And we pray this in his name, trusting in his merits alone. Amen.